purchasing a doctor's practice is quick, easy, and effortless on the part of the hospital CEO, but actually working collaboratively takes a lot of time and effort. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the executive session, a monthly discussion with the healthcare leader on a crucial issue of interest to medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lawton Robert Burns. He is the James Ju Chin Kim Professor, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Burns is the co-director of the Roy and Diana Vargolis Program in the Life Sciences and Management at Wharton. In addition to his directorship responsibilities, Dr. Burns teaches courses on healthcare strategy, strategic change, strategy implementation, organization and management, managed care, and integrated delivery systems. Dr. Burns recently published a healthcare text, The U.S. Healthcare Ecosystem, Payers, Providers, and Producers, that is the most comprehensive assessment of today's healthcare system that I know. I am most impressed by his explanation of physician practices and how physicians interact with hospitals and insurers. In fact, his book is the first publication for the general public that gets it right in its explanation for how medical groups function in the public and private sectors. Dr. Burns, can you please introduce yourself and describe your background and your experience at Wharton? Sure, Dave. Uh, by the way, thanks for inviting me to speak. Uh, it's Robert Burns, professor at the Wharton School, as Dave mentioned. Background, I can keep pretty simple. I trained at the University of Chicago, where I grew up. I uh, earned a master's and a doctorate uh, in organizational sociology, and then followed that up with a master's of business administration. And that's why my friends to this day call me third degree Burns. And by the way, that's the only joke I have. So it's all downhill from here. I wrote my dissertation on the management of hospital floors, which most sociologists don't do. And uh, as a result of that, I was invited to teach the MBAs who were in the healthcare program at the Graduate School of Business at Chicago. And what I discovered my first year of teaching there is that the MBAs knew more about the subject than I did because they had come from industry and I had just come out of a doctoral program. So I couldn't stand the fact that my students knew more than I did. So I applied to the Kaiser Foundation to get a fellowship to attend the MBA program in hospital administration at night in our downtown program while I taught in that program in the day. So I got an MBA in hospital administration, uh, which included working as a junior hospital administrator at two different facilities, one for-profit, one inner city. And uh, that training uh, taught me how the hospital system worked. Uh, it gave me uh, a better understanding of how to teach it. And it gave me some real insight in the kinds of research that was of interest to the practitioners and the physicians uh, as well as the research communities. I want to dive into your discussion on healthcare consolidation, but before we do, I'd like to know what prompted you to write this book. As I mentioned, it addresses the entire healthcare system. And while I've seen many texts that describe hospitals, insurers, or medical groups, I haven't found a book that has the breadth of your work. So I've been teaching the introductory course on the healthcare system for the last 35 years at three different universities. They're all business schools. And so I've taught nothing but MBAs for the last 35 years. Uh, they're a pretty challenging audience. Uh, they want to know how the system works. They want to know where the growth opportunities are. And they're not so much interested in theory and research. So to survive in this field, 
I needed to tackle subject matter that people like me don't normally get trained on in graduate school, which meant that I had to learn all the tech sectors, pharma, biotech, medtech, information technology, learn about business models and revenue models. I had to learn all of that just to uh, stay alive in the classroom. Now, if you look at the uh, existing textbooks on the US healthcare system, um, they're not very well received in MBA programs. And a lot of my colleagues who teach in business schools uh, don't use a textbook uh, for the reasons I've just mentioned. They're too dry, they're mechanistic. Oftentimes the data are out of date. Uh, there's too much focus on structure and statistics. They're not very current. They don't cover a lot of important topics like the things I've just mentioned. Uh, they're very top-down. They have very little feel for the ground zero of healthcare, especially physicians and physician-hospital relationships, which is one of the things I first learned when I was doing my internship. Uh, I worked a lot with the doctors and the doctor relationships. So I'm not sure that most techs does the subject real justice. After 35 years, I just feel like I'm beginning to understand it all. It's just so much to get your arms around. I've had the benefit of teaching this material to physicians in our executive MBA program on both coasts for a long time, and to physicians in major medical clinics across the country like Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Geisinger, Oxner, uh, and the material resonated with them. They get it. They've seen it all, and they've given me some really good positive feedback on what I've been doing. Over the last 15 years, on and off, I've been teaching portions of the introductory course to the first-year students in Penn School of Medicine, and they appreciate the business and operational approach that I've honed in my MBA, MBA courses so much that several of them actually apply to our MBA program when they're finishing up their medical school program, and they come over here to get a dual degree. Uh, Dr. Burns, you devote a chapter to how hospitals have attempted to mimic corporate America and their varying degrees of success in that attempt. Uh, you also describe how the growth avenue for hospitals is no longer in their core inpatient business, but in ambulatory and ancillary services that traditionally were physician managed and part of, of practices. As part of the process of expanding their scope of business, hospitals have created horizontal integrated multi-hospital chains on a local, regional, or national basis. What is driving these changes? Oh, sure. Um, my graduate school training coincided with the rise of the multi-hospital systems. Uh, and so I actually grew up on the south side of Chicago, and the American Hospital Association was downtown, and I actually received the help from the American Hospital Association to do my dissertation. Uh, and so I've watched these things over time. I, I've uh, collaborated with a lot of their researchers. And what I've noticed is that the hospitals developed into hospital systems over a long period of time in several phases. Uh, most recently, uh, I've written a chronicle of the multi-hospital systems in a new book, it was just published this spring with my colleague, David Dranoff at the Kellogg School. The book's called Big Med, and that's basically what these hospital systems are. They're big med. If you don't want to purchase the whole book, 
Uh, you can get a sneak peek by viewing a blog we just wrote for Psychology Today. It was published on June 3rd of this year in Psychology Today. The blog is called, Where Did All Our Provider Systems Come From? The blog explains the origins of hospital system, particularly phase one. So what drove these developments to form hospital systems? There are three phases in this development, at least, and each one's tied to an, an initiative by the federal government to expand health insurance. And so those three initiatives were Medicare in 1960s, the Clinton Health Plan in 1993, and the Affordable Care Act in 2009-2010. Each of those initiatives fostered renewed growth in multi-hospital systems. Provider consolidation in these multi-hospital systems were an unanticipated consequence of these federal moves to expand insurance coverage. Initially, when Medicare was passed, Medicare provided financial incentives for hospitals to form systems. So that was the, the initial push, is that, hey, there was some money to be made here. Later on, starting with the Clinton plan, the multi-hospital systems are developed by providers who are scared of what all this federal involvement in insurance may bring. So with the Clinton plan, it was talk about the formation of accountable health plans. With the ACA in 2009 and 10, it was called accountable care organizations. You can see the parallel phrasing here, but both things I think scared the heck out of the hospital systems. And they thought, well, you know, uh, it may be a safety and number strategy. If we band together, we can deal with this uncertain new legal environment we're going to be dealing with. Rhetorically, the name of the game for these hospital systems was coordination of care, scale economies and efficiencies, integrated health care, patient-centric care, engagement, and things like that. That was all on the rhetorical end. In reality, the name of the game was different. It was basically strength in numbers, survival, and bargaining power over commercial insurers. Another unfortunate reality, which gets back to your original question, is these were efforts by hospitals to try to mimic corporate America and deploy modern management structures and techniques to the hospital, whether or not they actually fit. This includes information technology, e-health, multi-divisional structures, everything. My feeling, and this is what uh, David Dranoff and I wrote in Big Med, is we had a bunch of misguided corporate strategies brought into healthcare by what we might call four-cylinder consultants who tried to blindly apply them to eight-cylinder jobs. And of course, some of the dysfunction we see in these physician-hospital relationships and hospital systems can be attributed to misapplication of corporate America ideas. You know, another element is that as hospital systems expanded their service mix into ambulatory care and ancillary services, they're directly competing with independent doctors who traditionally owned the, uh, this ambulatory health care. Obviously, this leads to conflict, uh, and one solution has been for hospitals to acquire those practices, but there are, are other alternatives that you've described. Before we talk about practice acquisition, can you give us some of your ideas of how a hospital can coexist with independent practices? That has historically been the norm. So hospitals did not own or manage physician practices for the bulk of the history of the U.S. healthcare ecosystem. Um, hospitals and doctors are interdependent. They do need one another, but they don't need to own one another. 
Okay, uh, the business and revenue models of these two parties are quite different. So is their scale of operation. And it actually, you know, trying to mix doctors and hospitals is like, is somewhat akin to mixing uh, oil and water kind of analogy. So mixing them is, is not an easy thing to do. And I don't think, and I don't think any of the evidence shows that ownership is the solution because we can't find any efficiencies in combining the two. In fact, oftentimes we find that combining the two, you know, ownership leads to higher prices and higher costs of care and sometimes even lower quality. So I don't think we're doing ourselves any favor here. Now, getting back to your question, how can they coexist with independent practices? There's a lengthy literature out there on how to get the two parties to work together in ways that are collaborative, productive, and financially rewarding. I have written a lot on this over the decades. I started writing on this in the mid 80s. Uh, and it wasn't my brilliant idea. It was a, an edit, a physician editor of a journal who said, why don't you start writing on this? So I did. So this literature has existed for decades and, and I'm not the only person doing it. Some of my colleagues have written on it too. But the, the, the issue becomes the solution on how to get the parties to work together. The solution requires a lot of interpersonal relationship work, it requires a lot of trust. It requires tenure in office by both the hospital executives and the leaders of the medical staff so that they can learn how to work together and, and to generate these productive relationships and trust. It involves real involvement by clinicians in all decision-making, which means hospital management, financial issues, access to financial data, and it requires physician-led initiatives to control costs and improve quality. So what the solution means is when we talk about integrated healthcare, it's integration is a verb. It's a process of working together between the hospital side and the medical side. That takes a lot of time and effort, and I think that's perhaps why it's not often done. You know, purchasing a doctor's practice is quick, easy, and effortless on the part of, of the hospital CEO, but actually working collaboratively takes a lot of time and effort. I think that's, a, I think, a very good point. There are known ways of working together. Unfortunately, so often the principals don't know that, and they don't want to learn. <laughs> I think the most common strategy that health systems have used to expand their ambulatory care services has been just to simply acquire physicians and their practices to create their integrated system and you know, have the brick and mortar of their inpatient ambulatory care facilities along with the physicians and other providers. And they create the system and then they wonder why it doesn't work. Totally. But you also, yeah, you also observe that this strategy has really evolved in the past 30 years. And what is happening today is quite different than the initial surge in practice acquisition in the 1980s and 1990s. So what are some of the factors that have changed and have enabled hospitals to have a better strategy for building their physician enterprise? Yeah. Well, I think you've hit it on the head. First of all, you know, there were phases in hospital consolidation, you know, different phases over time. There have also been different phases in vertical integration between doctors and hospitals. And you're right, the strategies pursued in the 1990s to vertically integrate doctors and hospitals differ from the strategies that have been pursued over the last 10 to 15 years. 
So some of the differences, as you mentioned, include, you know, they, these are no longer uh, guaranteed contracts where you just buy a physician's practice and, you know, you say you will get this salary for the next five years with no productivity incentives and uh, no other strings attached. Now just about every contract between a hospital and doctor is productivity-based. So it's, it's, they're, they're the, pro, the doctors are still paid basically on a productivity model, even though we call them employed, maybe may have a portion of their uh, salary guaranteed. We're also no longer paying for the intangible assets of physicians' practices. But I think the biggest change between the 90s and today is in the 90s, uh, hospitals were acquiring primary care physicians because everybody feared that California, the California model of HMOs was going to sweep eastward, uh, and then you needed to have a primary care physician component to manage patients on the outside. Uh, well, that never happened, uh, and instead hospitals began to integrate more with specialists in, in the new millennium, cardiologists, oncologists, there were some money-making opportunities here. And there was also a squeeze on the incomes of those uh, specialties, which impelled them to consider looking at uh, hospital employment. But the, what's common between the 1990s and today is the employment binge continues. The rationales have changed. So today we talk about accountable care organizations, the triple aim, developing service lines, the improving patient experience, patient quality and safety. The rationales have changed, but the, the practices and, and the, the way we finance those acquisitions has changed. But you know, I, I still think the vertical integration um, a strategy persists in the mind of the hospital CEOs. We've changed the labels, but the strategy continues. Yeah, in fact, you, know, you mentioned that the goal of many health systems has been to enhance patient experience, to improve population health, reduce the cost of care, and improve the work life of healthcare providers. Unfortunately, not every health, every health system or hospital manages to do all of these, and many of them may even have difficulty managing one or two of, the, of these factors. So what it enables some integrated systems to have better results than others? Okay, well, let me uh, uh, state one caveat up front. We don't have any peer-reviewed empirical evidence here. Um, it's hard to do randomized controlled trials on the, on the topics you've just raised. So uh, clinicians out there in your, in your membership who are looking for an evidence base uh, uh, may need to curb your enthusiasm about what you'll find here. Now, that said, uh, David Dranoff and I made a presentation to the American Medical Association's integrated physician practice section on June 6th of this year. I don't know if you can get access to it, but we went through some of the lessons that hospitals and doctors ought to be looking for in trying to generate the benefits of being more integrated with one another. People need to switch their thinking from vertical to horizontal approaches. In other words, stop thinking of top-down control models and think more in terms of peer-to-peer -peer lateral influence models and, and how we're going to shape physicians' decision-making and how we help physicians to reframe the decisions they do make, which may involve more peer education and normative pressure using uh, social influence of their peers and local networks, focusing on communication among physicians. We call this relational care coordination. 
which is a totally different view than most other perspectives on, you know, what do we do with uh, doctors? It's, you got to shift away from control to more of a peer-to-peer influence. Secondly, I think we need to shift away, and I bet the successful systems do this now, they're shifting away from just financial metrics to non-financial motivations. I think we need to reduce the emphasis on what colleagues in my field call financial integration. They focus on employment and salaries and stuff like that. I'm not sure that's what ultimately satisfies a clinician. I think what clinicians want are greater clinical autonomy on the front line of care, being able to control their work environment and themselves improving their work environment, uh, figuring out what's the best way to gather and collect and report the data rather than having that all imposed on them. I think we need to reconsider how we use clinical expertise and some very well-developed human capital. Physicians are the most highly trained human resource, and we ought to be investing more in how do we leverage that resource and in physician leadership development. How do we uh, foster greater tenure in the physicians who take leadership roles here, who can then, you know, uh, help develop change initiatives and working with their colleagues. And I think we also need to recognize that one size does not fit all. The different clinical areas and specialties will require different solutions, which resists a top-down approach and requires people to understand the clinical context of each specialty and how that will drive the solution to reducing costs and length of stay. It's going to require a lot of local clinician initiative and leadership. Uh, As some of my colleagues say, it's a lot of pick and shovel work that's going to have to be done. And I would also suggest to these hospitals that they they may need to reconsider, you know, integrating the doctors on the inside before trying to integrate doctors on the outside. In other words, clean up their shop inside. They may need to figure out ways to reformulate or reframe the medical staff organization, which people have been talking about for some time, but most, most places haven't done it. And then finally, you know, we offered the AMA some guiding principles for physician executives. I think the, the, the focus of effort should be on these verbs, integrating, coordinating, cost-cutting, rather than structures that try to do it. I think process is much more important than structure or technology. Structure is not integration. Technology is not the solution. These are just tools. And so it's a lot of process work. I think a third guiding principle is that it's the unobtrusive controls rather than obtrusive structures and metrics. One of the things that Penn Medicine is doing is they're embedding choice architecture into the electronic medical record and using clinician-guided behavioral economics to frame the decisions that doctors make. You don't tell them what to do, but you just make it, you reduce the friction and you make it easier to do the right thing. Uh, Another guiding principle is that, you know, I think we ought to be focusing more on small scale changes rather than disruptions or the silver bullets that are going to change healthcare. I don't think any of those things have ever worked. I used to teach our course here in Wharton on strategic implementation. Small scale local change always works better than top down big picture change. I think we need to reward physicians for their contribution to the system. I think maybe making the rewards bigger. Because so far, a lot of the reward systems have been tiny and puny, and they just don't get anybody's attention. And if we're going to employ physicians, make it selective rather than across the board.
I think excellent points uh, in all those areas. Now, since our listeners are predominantly medical practice executives, uh, I have two very related questions for you. Uh-huh. First, what should the leaders of independent practices do to maintain their independent relations within their health systems, yet still let the health system excel? And the second clo- question is, again, closely related. In an integrated system, what should the leaders in the health system's practices do to enable their system to excel? Uh, these are great questions. And, and actually, I have to put a lot of thought into this. First, let me again say there's no peer-reviewed empirical evidence here. However, we do have some pretty good information, uh, Dave, that you and your staff have done over a long period of time of documenting you know, the business practices and the cost structure of uh, medical groups. I think the, 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 one, the first thing that practices are going to need to uh, focus on it is to make sure they're financially solvent and buoyant, which, which take, entails a lot of things. There are a lot of moving parts here. It involves ancillary staffing that might make the physicians in the group more productive, uh, managing overhead costs to try to reduce them as much as you can. And I think a big issue going forward that I've seen in practice, you know, on the ground is physician recruitment and retention. Because that, you know, problems with physician recruitment and retention can lead to a downward spiral in a medical group. Um, that said, what, what should leaders of these practices do? I think, you know, the relationships uh, with the external hospitals in their market, that, that is a two-way street. And so there ought to be flows going both ways. So historically, hospitals can and do often help local groups with financial support to assist in hiring new physicians, because that will eventually benefit the hospital in terms of uh, admissions or referrals and things like that. So those types of relationships need to be cultivated. At the same time, you know, the groups need a certain size, you know, scale to gain and keep the attention of their local hospital systems and be viewed as salient as partners. So you don't want your practice to be deteriorating or withering on the vine. You need to put a lot of emphasis into their recruitment and retention efforts. You know, hospitals are growing, managed care organizations are growing, and so the physician practices have to be at least stable, if not growing themselves, uh, just to be on a little bit more level playing field. Now, to me, this has both positive and negative overtones. The positive overtones is, you know, a bigger practice is going to be a bigger admitter and a bigger referred to the hospital and a bigger source of the hospital's business. That makes you a salient partner. So there's no evidence that large size is going to make the medical group more efficient. There's a little bit of evidence that might improve quality, but you know, at a minimum, it'll make you a little bit more salient to the local hospitals. Secondly, doesn't hurt if you if uh, your medical group members have the ability to staff ancillary areas of the hospital, whether it's the emergency department, anesthesia, the NICU units, other units, you know, because ho- hospitals are under financial pressure, they may feel a need to outsource uh, some of these ancillary services to organized groups on the outside. So that can be a big revenue op- uh, opportunity for some of these medical groups. Uh, the negative overtone of the medical group getting big uh, is that um, you now become a bigger competitor to the hospital, but you also have the threat of moving market share to competing hospitals. So you ought to maintain some alternative 
hospital privileges. So there's some positive and negative overtones with getting big. But, you know, right now, you know, the book we wrote is called Big Med. Everybody's gotten big. Uh, I think the late, the late comer to the scale party, the merger and acquisition party have been the medical groups. And I think they're now beginning to recognize, you know, we may need to be a little bit bigger. We may need to figure out ways to ally with or combine with other medical groups to increase our salience and scale in the local market. In fact, I have seen uh, both orthopedic surgery and urology groups, especially, uh, look at their growth and becoming uh, economic powerhouses regionally, uh, and also their ability to better utilize ancillary uh, tech, ancillary services with high cost and technologies, such as a urology group having its own CT, its own lithotripsy uh, ambulatory surgery center, and other related ancillary services. So I think your comments, I think, are very well taken, and uh, there's there's a good history of. of medical groups being very successful as they grew. Uh, let's address another issue, and that has to do with government commercial insurers uh, looking at, at reducing their healthcare expenditures by creating value-based insurance programs where doctors or hospitals are bonused and are put at financial risk if, uh, if they do not reduce costs. And how has consolidation enabled groups and integrated systems to benefit from these contracts and what should practice executives expect from their affiliated health systems and value-based care delivery? Yeah. How consolidation helps the medical groups and hospitals gain these contracts is you gain these contracts when you have a, a fairly broad network of providers, which includes both doctors and hospitals. And so the consolidation and the integration help to gain contracts by virtue of the fact that you can serve up to a payer, whether it's an employer or a managed care organization, a broader provider network of both hospitals and doctors. And uh, you, know, you can even have the potential to launch your own Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, so the consolidation serves to help in that regard. And you can develop this broader network in the form of an accountable care organization or a clinically integrated network or what's called a CIN or, you know, and so there are a lot, number of organizational vehicles for serving up this broader network, all of which sound like consolidation. So uh, to simplify this, the, the larger size network you get by combining hospitals and doctors and any of these structural vehicles can help you get a contract. But, you know, that to me, that's just the beginning um, because we're not sure how much we all benefit from these value-based contracts. And so I've, I spent a lot of time studying value-based care. I put some of this into the book. I presented a lot of this yesterday to our medical students. And as I see it, there are four problems with value-based contracts that your members ought to be aware of. And so their, their potential pitfalls or landmines on the way to value-based contracting. First, it's hard to define value. Most people couldn't define value if, if they tried. And at most, what they'll come up with is quality divided by cost, which is accurate. What they don't acknowledge or even think about is the numerator in that quality divided by cost. The numerator of value is really a vector of a boatload of quality metrics that are not highly correlated with one another. And so I don't know if people have ever thought about, well, how do you divide a vector by cost? You can't, 
And so trying to compute value, at least empirically, is really a tough sell. Then the second problem with value-based contracts is most of the alternative payment models that are now used in value-based contracting, such as pay for performance, they don't really impact the cost and quality of care. So pay for performance, which is the number one you know, illustrator of value-based contract has been a total dud. And I'm not the only one saying that. A lot of people have said that. And why is that the case? Well, it's the case because most of the alternative payment models, which are associated with an ACO or a CIN, really don't move us off of fee-for-service reimbursement. So the financial incentives have not really changed. The physicians are still basically paid on a productivity model. And so that whole uh, so-called movement from volume to value, it never happened. We're still incentivizing doctors and hospitals on the basis of volume, no matter what payment model people say they're using. And if that wasn't enough, the fourth problem with value-based contracts is that most of the new organizational models that are used to deliver value-based care, such as ACOs or CONs, really haven't moved the needle on cost or quality either. If you look at the, the research on ACOs, you will, you will be underwhelmed. You only have to go to health affairs to see some of the, the mixed you know, results that the ACOs have posted over now nine years of operating uh, my, my colleague up at um, uh, Harvard has published uh, some of these things. And so they really haven't saved us much money. They really haven't delivered on the cost or quality of healthcare. And so value-based care is relying on new payment models, which don't work, and new provider organizational models, which don't work. And we're trying to deliver on a quotient where the numerator is a vector, you can see the problems we're gonna face here. So I just want your, your, uh, your readers and your listeners to understand this is not an easy task. No, you're, I think you're 100% correct. Uh, and in fact, maybe this may be an opportunity as we uh, go move to conclude our discussion today is to uh, that we've only touched some of the aspects of your book that I found fascinating and informative and that I would highly recommend that our listeners uh, you know that they look into into obtaining a copy for their own use but also I can see how this could be a very helpful reference to use with the physicians in the practice to help the doctors to better understand how the system works together. Because I think so often providers, they're, as you mentioned earlier, the most highly educated and trained profession in, in the United States, but they have blinders. They're so focused on their clinical work that they miss the understanding of how the system comes together and how and their importance in the in the system. So I think there's some very good opportunities for practices to educate their doctors and their key staff members in how the system functions. And I think that it will also enable practices to perform themselves better because they'll know how they interrelate to the insurers and the, and the health systems that they're part of. So as I've mentioned that, Dr. Burns, is there anything you would like to add to our discussion? Well, uh, Dave, you're very kind in your, um, your praise and comments. You know, this book is really a civics lesson to everybody. You know, it's, it's virtually impossible for any player in the healthcare system to understand it all. And in fact, 
I think we want our doctors to be focusing and, and you know, concentrating on their specialty to deliver the highest quality care they can. We shouldn't expect them to know all this stuff. But you know, we've been stymied in our efforts to explain all this uh, to people because we just haven't had you know, enough good textbooks on the topic. I'm hoping my book is at least one of the first ones to try to lay all this out. And the only reason I'm here is I've been doing this now for 35 years. And, you know, I've had a, a pretty tough crowd to deal with. And so, you know, they've kind of held my feet to the fire and I needed to be entertaining and comprehensive and in-depth with an operational focus. As, as the, uh, the head of the um, AMA, uh, James Madera said, and, and as part of the praise for this book, and, and others did too, you know, we're looking at the physiology of healthcare, not the structure or anatomy of healthcare. We're really looking at how this healthcare ecosystem really operates. And I think the operative word here is it's an ecosystem. It's, there's no system of healthcare. There's no rationally designed top-down imposed structure on this. This is a series of actors and players who've all, you know, arisen and developed independently of one another. And we've proliferated the number of providers and payers and all these things. And we have this huge ecosystem of payers, providers, producers, and they're all working with one another or against one another, bargaining with one another, signing contracts with one another. You know, it's, it's an exchange, a series of exchanges built on contracts, which are basically impenetrable to just about everybody else in the healthcare system. And so people come to healthcare with some pretty simplistic ideas of what it is and how to change it. And what you really need to know is to understand how this ecosystem really operates. The fact that we're likely not gonna have coordinated care or integrated care given the proliferation of all these actors. And so we really need to recalibrate uh, our expectations to curb our enthusiasm for what we can achieve in the short term. And I think it behooves all of us to develop a little bit more of a wider scan of what's involved in all this thing and what areas can we work on uh, in the short term. Dr. Burns, thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners will find our discussion most interesting. Thank you, Dave.